looking firstly in John chapter number 14, verse number 16 and 18. And if y'all want to go ahead and, and get ready, um, our brother Charles, look at F- Ephesus. <laughs> Ephesians 9 through 11. Brother Ricky, if you'll look at Daniel 4, 34 and 35. Dad, if you'll look at Deuteronomy 5, 25 through 27. Lindsay, if you'll mark down to be looking at Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 19. And then Samuel, if you'll look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 6. Um, and then I'm going to take 2 Corinthians 3, and then we'll look at some other stuff. But anyway, tonight is, like I said, tonight is the summary of this book. And I think the chapter was fitly named when it was called, Are We There Yet? That is my kid's favorite word when we go on a trip. We can only be going 45 minutes away, which isn't that far, but we're there yet. We're there yet. Well, that's what we're looking at tonight. When we come to the Bible, our question often is, are we there yet? I mean, if, if we all are honest, we probably look around at the world around us and think to ourselves like John did. You know, John said, even so, come quickly. But he very may well have said, are we, are we there yet? Is it ready? Is it time? And that's, that's a, lot of, a lot of our attitude is looking around, looking in the scriptures, and growing spiritually and wanting to be there. But from beginning to end, we can know that walking with Jesus Christ is going to change us. That's, that's what this whole study has been about. It's been about te- teaching us how to walk with Jesus the way that those two disciples on the road to Emmaus walked with him. To learn from him, to learn of him, and to be like him. So this summary, we'll look at three different things. We'll look at walking with Jesus will move us to marvel and worship. Walking with Jesus will move us, secondly, to hope and trust. And thirdly, walking with Jesus will make us more like Him. So firstly, and I guess we should read our text. Um, John 14, 16 through 18. It says, And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another. And I know if you heard Brother Preacher Ricky say it. Preacher Ricky. Y'all going to have to pray for me tonight. <laughs> if you heard Preacher Richie say this, he, whenever he talks about this verse, he says that word another means another of the same kind. Jesus said, I'm going to send you another comforter. He said, I'm going to send you a comforter that's the exact same kind as the one that's been walking around with you. Amen. That he may abide with you, not just for a couple of days, not just for 33 years, not just till you die, but he will abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, and we learn from Sunday night, he's the spirit of truth, and he's the spirit of adoption, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth not him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Jesus was saying, We're the same. He's coming. 
He's the same. It's another. It's the same. He is with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So what we have today in the spirit of truth that is in us is the exact same things those two disciples had on the road to Emmaus. We have him in us and with us and not just for a couple hour journey, but forever. We've been given his word and walking through his word is going to move us to marvel and worship him because he's with us and in us. When we see who he is and see what he has done and seeing what he is doing, these are the things that are going to call us to marvel and worship. We're going to look at him and we're going to say, this God is, as Isaiah said, great and terrible and not terrible in a bad way, terrible in an awesome way, something that strikes awe in his heart. Our God is great and he is awesome. He is terrible. We can see some of these things when we're looking through the scriptures and as we've moved through these lessons. And one of those key things that we pointed out is that God is the author of history. He's the one who is writing our stories, so to speak. If we think about it the way that Paul has presented it to us and the way that... Hebrews chapter number 11 presents it to us. You can almost think of the entire history of the world as a play. We're the actors. God's the author. And the Bible says that we entertain angels unaware. There's, there's specific phrases in the New Testament that talk about angels watching, desiring to understand, looking into God is playing out what he has determined to play out in the world because he's authored it all from the beginning. It's all going to happen the way he's laid it out because he is the Lord over his creation. He's the author of history, and we learned from a couple weeks ago that because he's the author of history, we can have trust and assurance that his promises are sure and secure. The reason that Old Testament prophecies all fulfilled themselves in Christ is because God decided that it was going to be that way. He wrote history. He's the author of history. So if we'll look at, uh, first of all, Ephesians 1, 9 through 11. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he had purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Just a quick preview. Remember that word inheritance for Sunday night. Uh, but Paul says in Ephesians, and we've covered this on Sunday mornings, he says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one 
all things in Christ. Paul's saying that everything that God did, it culminated, it came together in the person and the work of Jesus Christ because he planned it that way. The book of Acts, Peter tells those Jews, he said, God ordained that he would come and be crucified. There's nothing that you could have done to stop it. There's nothing that you could have done to hinder it. That was the plan of God. If Christ had not been crucified, then God would have broken promises in the Old Testament. The cross was never a plan B. It was never an option two. It was never the second best. But the cross and the work of Christ was always the plan of God. It all culminated in Christ. One in one, all things in Christ, both in heaven and earth, everything. And we can see this authorship illustrated in multiple places in the Scripture. One of the places that we see illustrated is in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And we can look at that from Daniel chapter number 4, verses 34 and 35. text when we were looking at the, at the characteristics, of, characteristics of God. His dominion is forever. It never ends. It's always beginning to end. There wasn't a time when God wasn't the author of history. There wasn't a time when he dropped his pen and the devil picked it up and scratched some stuff on there. None of that ever happened. His dominion has been forever. His kingdom is generation to generation. And nothing in heaven or, or, or on earth can repute or question him. Nebuchadnezzar said this. This was a man who, if you remember from the story of Daniel, was very, very prideful, thought he was the best thing ever, that he was the most powerful man that ever lived. He was going to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. And God said, you know what? I'm just going to show you who I am and who you really are. And he sent him out, and you have a king that's out in the field eating grass like a cow for seven years. When Nebuchadnezzar comes to himself... And he says, he lifted his eyes, his understanding returned, and what did he do? What was the first thing he did? He didn't get mad at God. When he saw who God was, he said, I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored him. And then he starts to marvel at who he was. Yes. See, when Nebuchadnezzar got the understanding, came to the realization that God was the author of everything, God was in charge, he said, you know what? It's better off that he's in charge. And he's always been in charge. And he's never not going to be in charge. So we see that illustrated that God is the author. And that's one of the things that when we come to the scriptures, we should be able to see God playing out his redemptive narrative. God is playing out this narrative all through the Old Testament. And whether we're in Amos or we're in Joel or we're in Psalms or we're in Ruth or we're in Genesis or Numbers or Deuteronomy... Whatever section of scripture that we're in, 
it should bring us to marvel and worship God because everything that he did was pointing to himself. Everything that he did was given to us is for his glory and ultimately it's for our good because it all points to the person of Jesus Christ. So number two, not only should it move us to marvel and worship, but it should move us to hope and trust. It's only in Jesus that we find hope. Because it's only in Him that we can place our trust. If I can trust something, then I can, ha- I can hope in it. I can, I can hope the way, that we, the way that we normally say things. was like, well, you know, are we gonna, we're going to go do such and such. And I may say, well, I hope so. But I, it's, it's not sure. It's not something that I completely trust. And I don't know what's going to happen between now and the weekend. So it's not sure. So I can't completely put all of my trust in the fact that that's going to happen. But because we see God as the author of Scripture, we can put our hope and our trust in Jesus because we know that he spent 4,000 years plus doing exactly what he said he was going to do. He's, got a, he's, he's batting 1,000. He's got the best track record of anybody who's ever lived. So we can hope and we can trust that he's going to do what he said. Scientifically, the scientific method is that you can replicate, and if something happens the same way, the same, the same circumstances over and over and over again, then scientifically it is true. So not only do we read the scriptures that God is true, but even if you want to say scientifically God is true, because he has done everything that he's ever said. Every single time, it's always came out in the exact same way that he said it would come out. So if you'll look at Deuteronomy somewhere. I don't remember who had it. Deuteronomy 5, 25-27. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that hath heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and live. Go thou near and hear all the Lord our God shall say and speak thou unto us all that the Lord our God shall speak unto thee and we will hear it and do it. Remember that for here in just a second. Deuteronomy 18 verses 9 through 19. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or observer, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Thou thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. For these nations which thou shalt possess hearken unto observers, observers of times and unto diviners. But as for thee, the Lord thy God hath not suffered thee so to do. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee. Of thy brethren, like unto me, 
Unto him he shall hearken, according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in the forest, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more, that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass, that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will, I will require it of him. So we have, in the first section of scripture, the children of Israel said, you know what, we're not going to go up there where Moses was just at. We'll send Moses for us. Later on, they say, you know what? We need a prophet. We can't do this on our own. God has to send somebody to be in between us. And we looked at that. We looked at what that prophet and that priestly role was last week. But as we're looking down through these things, there was no hope in Adam. We can't trust Adam. God gave Adam responsibility and Adam botched it. We can't put our trust in Noah. The word Noah, it, the word Noah even means rest. We can't rest in Noah because Noah, as soon as he gets off the ark, goes and gets drunk. Abraham, can't put our trust in Abraham. Abraham said some good things. Abraham did some good things. But as soon as you get ready to put your trust in him, he runs down to Egypt and lies to Pharaoh about his wife being his sister. We can't even trust Israel, God's chosen people, the ones that he chose to bring forth the Messiah, the one that he said, I want to give you a land. You're going to be a blessing to people. The one that he gave the word of God. They carried out the oracles of God. They were chosen that they would have be part of the lineage of the Messiah. They were chosen that they would bring the word of God to the world. But we can't even trust them. They said everything God said, we're going to do it. We can't put our trust in that because guess what they did? Their track record wasn't keeping promises. Their track record was breaking promises. If we think anything about Israel, we can look at Israel and we can say, well, they did wrong and they did wrong and they did wrong and they broke this promise and they broke this promise and they missed this covenant and they missed that covenant. And then they did what was wrong again and they did what was wrong again. They said, well, we want a priest and they didn't listen to the priest and they killed the priest. They said, well, we want a prophet. And they said, well, we're going to kill the prophets and not listen to him either. And then we go into bondage and say, well, we need a king. A king will fix everything. And then they don't want the king, and then they try and kill the king, and then the kingdom split up, and you've got bad kings on one side and semi-bad kings on the other side. It was a mess. Looking back to the Old Testament, we can't put our trust in any of these people. There are people. There are, there are different sects of it, but Jewish people put their trust in Moses. They put their trust in Abraham. But there's no trust there. There's no hope. I can't put my hope in any of those people. Even reading through the Old Testament, I can't, I can't look at David and say, well, David killed Goliath. I can't put my hope in him. Because as soon as I turn my back and start to trust in David, he goes off adultery, murder, all kind of stuff. One of the, one of the worst people you can think of. 
Even David was mad at himself. Nathan comes and tells him, he said, well, what if a guy had one sheep, and this other guy had a lot of sheep, and then a guy comes to the guy with a lot of sheep, and he goes and kills the guy with the one sheep, goes and kills, takes him and kills him. What do you think about that? He said, well, that guy's going to die. That guy's worthless. And Nathan looked at him and said, you're, you're him. You're that guy. Even David didn't like himself. David couldn't even trust himself. But we've got a book of Psalms. And we've got Noah. We've got Abraham. We've got Israel. We've got all these people. We can't put our trust in any of them, but all these people point us to one person that we can put our trust into. Noah, he knew what was coming. He had, he, God had shown him what was coming. Abraham, Paul tells us that God told Abraham what the gospel was before it ever happened. Abraham wasn't looking at himself. He knew he was worthless. He was looking toward the one to come. He was searching for a city and a builder of a city whose builder maker was God. All these people were looking for somebody else. The only one that we can trust in eternally is not Noah, it's not Abraham, it's not Israel. The only one that we can put our trust in is Jesus. He's the only one. He's the only one who has proven himself. He's the only one that says who he is and what he does and it all happened. He's the only one. He's the only one who was able to reconcile the world back to God. It was Moses could not reconcile the children. Moses could not even reconcile himself back to God, right. much less anybody else. But Jesus is the one that we can place our eternal hope and trust because all of these people whom the scriptures put up as being great people, we see their flaws too because it's not about them. It's pointing us all to Christ. Christ is the ultimate person. Just like that, the verse in Ephesians says, it's one in all Christ. All of our hope and all of our trust, it all can be lumped into one person, and that person is Jesus. And thirdly, we see that walking with Jesus will make us more like Him. When we see Jesus... In eternity. What does John say? He says, when we see him, what was, what's going to happen to us? That's what he said. He said, when we see him, we shall be like him. And just as a side note, John saw him in Revelation 1. And it's not the Jesus that we think about most of the time. He had eyes of fire. His head was white. But when we see him, we're going to be like him. We're going, to, we're going to take on those, not the divine attributes, but those personal attributes. Those, the attributes of love and kindness and goodness and long-suffering. All those things that the spirits are working in us now, we're going to com- those things are going to be completely fulfilled in us when we see him. We'll be like him in those ways. When we see him, the Bible tells us we will be like him. So it just stands to reason that as we see him, it's going to make us more like him. We, we understand that our glorification, when we see Christ on that day, everything's done, everything's over, we're like him. So as we're looking into the scriptures and seeing glimpses of his face, it's going to make us more like him. We can't leave seeing him in the scriptures and come away not becoming like him. It's impossible. 
It can't happen. I can't run through a river and not get wet. Any more than I can read the scriptures looking for Christ and not turn out like Him in some way, shape, or form. And that's the Spirit's work in our life. And we've been looking at that in the book of Romans. That's the Spirit's work in us. That as we look at Him in the scriptures, He's making us like Him. And I'll look specifically in 2 Corinthians chapter number 7. Or chapter number 3, I'm sorry. And I kept this specifically because it is good. I'll just leave it with that. We'll, we'll get there as soon as I get turned. But there's some really, really good stuff in these verses. I'm, I'm almost convinced, and I know this is an ignorant statement, but I'm almost convinced that 2 Corinthians chapters 3 through 5 is the best portion of Scripture in the Bible. I know, that, I know that's an ignorant statement to make because you, that could be said about anywhere. But I feel like 2 Corinthians, at least in my life, has been overlooked. I, I don't read... Honestly, I've read through 2 Corinthians, but I can't say I've ever sat down until the last couple of years and actually paid attention to what was being said in the book of 2 Corinthians. But if we look at this passage of Scripture, so 2 Corinthians 3, verses number 7 through 18, and pay attention to the words that the Apostle Paul is writing down through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse number 7, he says, But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away with. And we understand what Paul's talking about. He's talking, he's taking us back. When Moses went up and he received, what did he receive? He received the law. He said the ministration of death, that, that covenant of death, the law that was coming to kill everybody because of sin. If he went up there and got that and came back down and they had to put a veil over his face because his countenance was so bright... He said that glory was done away with. He said Paul, Paul said Moses went up and in, got, that, got that law, that glory of the law, which was done away with, and it changed who Moses was. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For the ministration of condemnation be glory. He said, if the ministration of condemnation be glorious. So if the law was glorious, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. He said, if the law was glorious, just wait. Because the ministration of righteousness, the new covenant, that covenant of grace, Jesus Christ, it's exceeding in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect. He said, if you compare the two, the first one, you can't even compare it. It may as well have been no glory. By reason of the glory that exalted. He said, this, he said, the glory that's coming is so much more glorious, it's going to make the other one pale in comparison. For even that which was made glorious hath no glory. I think we just read that. In this respect, by reason of the glory that exalted. For if that which was done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. 
And Paul's making sure these Corinthians are getting it because we understand from 1 Corinthians they're not the brightest people in the world. Seeing then that we have such, what? Hope. We use great plainness of speech. He's saying, this is so good. I'm just going to tell you straight like it is. As not as, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, the children, that the children of Israel could not see steadfastly, look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remained the same veil, untaken away, in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away with in Christ. He's saying these, he's, what Paul's writing to the Greenland church, he's saying the ones who aren't seeing Christ in the Old Testament, they still have a veil over their face. They're still basking in a glory that's not even in comparison to what has come. The Jewish people, they're basking in a glory of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant that God had made in the law, it pales in comparison to Jesus Christ. He said they're still, he said, he said, reading of the Old Testament, he said it's been done away. He said it's fulfilled in Christ. It's in, been done away with, fulfilled, complete in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. They're saying they still have, everything's still veiled. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now, the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Paul is telling us we will change. He said when we are able to look at the Old Testament, and that's all these people had, when he said, when we're able to look at the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, the veil is taken away. We don't look at David thinking, well, how can we slay the giants in our life? We don't look at Abraham and say, well, what kind of blessings can God give me? We don't look at Moses and, 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 and expect man to fall from heaven. We don't look at all these things. All these things are, are worthless Every sermon that is preached without Christ is worthless. Amen. It's veiled. There may, there may be some small glory in a sermon that is without Christ. There may be some small glory in a Sunday school lesson that's without Christ. There may be some small glory in a conversation that is without Christ. But once we see Christ, once we see his gospel in the Old Testament... In the New Testament, in our conversations, in our sermons, in our Sunday school lessons, everything is going to pale in comparison to seeing him there. When we begin to see him in the Old Testament, we can never step away and desire the veil again. That's why Paul said, he told the Galatians, he said, why do you want these barely elements again? He called them worthless. 
He said everything that I learned in the Old Testament was dumb. That I may win Christ. He said that's all I care about. That's all I want. I want to get rid of everything, every aspect of the law, every portion of the Old Testament that I remembered. I want to get rid of it all and throw it on the dung heap. I want rid of it. Get rid of it. It's worthless. I want Christ. All he was concerned about was Christ because the veil had been removed. And he says in verse 18, but we with open face. He said, we're not veiled. The scriptures aren't veiled and we're not veiled. We can see it openly as in a glass. He's saying it's just like looking at yourself in a mirror. That's how that's how open it is. It's not necessarily we don't have Christ standing before us. We will one day. But we have the Spirit of God in our heart. We have the Word of God. And those two things are the same. They're the expressed image of Christ. It's who He is. It's like looking in the mirror. It's not me in the mirror. I'm not in the mirror. But I see myself in the mirror. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying we, he said, he said get, rid of, get rid of the veil. It's like looking in the glass and beholding the glory of the Lord. And he says something's going to happen. He says that we're going to change into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. He's saying this is going to happen. It can't not. He said if you stare in the mirror of Scriptures, if you stare in the mirror of the Holy Spirit, you're going to be changed and you can't stop it. Why? He says it. Even as by the the Spirit of the Lord. Paul is telling us when we come to the Scriptures, if we see Christ, it will change us. Moses went alone to glory. Jim Israel said, we can't go up there with you. You go up into the glory, that old glory. That glory has been done away with. It doesn't compare. We can't go up there with you. We're not worthy. You go up there. You find out what we need to know. He went alone into that glory and brought a little bit of it back with him. Christ came. He brings the glory to everybody and not just some veiled glory. He brings the express glory of God because Paul says in the book of Colossians, he is the expressed image of his person. God was pleased that in him should the entire fullness of the Godhead dwell bodily. Christ brings that glory, that full glory to each and every one of us. Same if you'll look at 2 Corinthians 4 and verse number 6. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Seeing his face is going to change us. It can't not. And we've been given a scripture that has his face everywhere. We don't have to turn over to John 3.16 to find the face of Christ. It's everywhere. On every page. Road signs, streams, everything that we've looked at, it points us to him. To finish out the rest of this, of this section right here, and then I will go real quickly through a through a kind of, I guess, a conclusion of taking everything that we've learned. But 
The Bible's not an entertainment piece. It's not there to just entertain us. It's not there for us to read these cool stories about people and never listen to it again. It's not there to make movies about to watch on Easter. It's not theirs to make different cartoons about so the kids can be happy. It's not to entertain us. While some of it is entertaining, and I'm not going to lie, I was sitting on the couch about to roll over laughing last night because I saw a picture of a stuffed animal that had a scared look on his face, and it said the look that Ehud, the look that Eglon gave Ehud before he stabbed him with the knife. So some of it is entertaining, but it's not that. It's not the purpose. It's not entertaining. It's not a puzzle. We don't have to put pieces pieces together and try and figure out how it all fits and who does what and where it goes when and when Jesus is coming back and what this really means because we don't understand it. It's not a puzzle we have to put together. And the Bible's not a maze. God's not trying to say, well, no, come this way and then go around here and go this way. It's a clear marked road, and I think we've covered most of that. So real quickly, we'll go to this last piece, and it's working it out. So how do we work this out in our life? Or in Scripture, I guess would be the better way to say it. So Numbers, Numbers 24, 15 through 19. And we'll spend a few minutes here and we'll conclude this book. So Numbers 24, verses 15 through 19. We're getting there slowly but surely. Alright, the Bible says, And he took up up." Up his parable and said, Balaam, the son of Behor, hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said, he had said, which heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High, which saw the vision of the, of the Almighty falling into a trance, but having his eyes opened. I shall... I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter, a scepter, scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies. And Israel shall do valiantly. valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion. And shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. So, we'll take all the pieces that we have looked at. In our geography of Scripture to this text. So the first one that we come to is what stream is this in? What is the covenant that these people are under? We understand that the book of Numbers, it's literally a book about the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. If you read the book of Numbers, there's a genealogy at the beginning of the book of Numbers and there's a genealogy at the end of the book of Numbers. What happened to all the people in between those genealogies? There was 40 years and they all died. Because basically what Moses was writing down, he said, these are the people who didn't listen at the beginning. And at the end, he said, these are the people who was the people who didn't listen as kids that are going to go into the promised land. But all this is happening while they're journeying in the wilderness. So we understand that they are under the covenant of Abraham, 
they have been promised a land, and they are also under a covenant of Moses. They've been given a law. So there's these two aspects. They are commanded to live the way that God has said to live, and they have been commanded to possess the land that God said they will possess. And we can see those aspects drawn out in this text. He says that it's going to happen. Specifically, in towards the end of verse number 17, he said, he said that somebody's going to rise out of Israel and smite the corners of Moab. That literally means, and I looked it up, smite the corners of Moab literally means smash Moab's face in. <laughs> Which kind of cracked me up a little bit. But that's what it means. It means he's going to smash Moab's face. So, and destroy all the children of Sheth. So understand that there's a promise of these covenants happening. Of this stuff playing out. They're going to obtain that land. But we understand that this narrative is about something greater than that. So keep in mind the covenant that we're in. These covenants about the land and about the law are pointing us to somebody. All these things that are playing out in the scripture... They're pointing us to something. Yes, Israel has been promised a land, but that's pointing us to something. Israel's been promised a seed. It's pointing us to something. And Israel has been promised or given the law. And that's pointing us to something. Israel's already failed in the law side of it. Just so we're all... I know that's a spoiler alert, but they're journeying in the wilderness because they failed. They did not obey. They said just a little while ago, We'll obey everything God says, and then they didn't. So, secondly, we see what stream we're in. So, it's the Mosaic Covenant or the Abrahamic Covenant. It's a part of those two streams that have kind of combined into each other. So, what road are we on? What's the context? And again, we've talked about that some. Israel's in the wilderness. There's a king that said, I don't like Israel. I'm going to hire this prophet to go curse them. Now, all we, really, all we really remember about Balaam is his donkey talking to him. There's a lot more to the story there. He says, Balaam, you go and you go curse those Israelites. Well, Balaam goes, and every time he opens his mouth, blessings come out. He goes back. He said, I couldn't curse them. He said, go back and curse them. He goes back again. Blessings come out again. Well, God speaks his word through Balaam. Who is not a godly man, but God is using him. And again, this is this is part of that key. God is using an ungodly person to play out the narrative that God has decided to play out. So whether we obey God or not, God is using us for his means. We would just be better off to obey God and be used in the means of God in a good way than in the means of God in a bad way. And we're coming to all that in Romans also. So we understand the context that we're in. Children of Israel are in the wilderness, and a guy is coming to curse them. But instead of cursing them, God speaks through him. So that's the road. That's the context. So what are the road signs? What are the types and the fulfillments? And I know everybody probably started to notice those as we were reading through them. He says specifically, there's some types in here. Who's coming? He said, not yet. You don't see him now. You don't see him. He's not close yet. He's not nigh. There shall come a what? A star. Does anybody, does anybody notice the capitalization in that word? It's the name of God. Out of Jacob. And a what? A, sep, a, sep, 
scepter. I keep on wanting to say sepulcher, but it's a scepter. A scepter. That word scepter, what is it? It's capitalized. Shall rise out of Israel and smite the corners of Moab. Now, these things happened for Israel. But don't miss it. Because David did rise out of Israel. David is a picture. David, David's, David's character is a picture of a star. Where did the star... And this is, this is where the Bible starts to fit together. Where did the star for that wise man, where did it go over top of? It was a town. It was a shepherd that was born in that same town. So we're seeing more types fit together. More things start to... It starts to be unveiled a little bit more and more. So we see a star... And we see a scepter. That's a king. This is a king's coming. David was a king, right? David was a king. So this is pointing us to David, right? This is obviously pointing us to David. He's the fulfillment. But David, we already know David wasn't the fulfillment. David messed it all up. He said, a star is coming out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of Israel. And he shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Seth. Edom shall be his possession. Seir also his possession for all his enemies. And Israel shall do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion. We just read about dominion a little while ago. And shall destroy him that remaineth in the city. So we see these types. These types... Can points to other types, but that type doesn't. He's not. He doesn't work. The type doesn't go together. It's that. It's that square peg in that round hole that we, we were talking about a couple weeks ago. So here, and this this is this is where we start to notice our landmarks from last week. Okay, so we have a man named Balaam. What is Balaam? Anybody have any idea? Bible calls Balaam a prophet. Seems like we talked about a prophet pretty recently. Well, Balaam, he wasn't, he wasn't, he spoke some things God said, but I don't think we can put our trust in Balaam. We do see a prophet there. And we see a star. Star kind of gives us an idea of a priest, maybe. Somebody who kind of rises up above everybody. Everybody can see, everybody kind of behold him. Gives them some light, not a lot of light, but a little bit of light. So we got maybe the idea of a priest. That landmark might be sitting a little bit back farther than the than the than the, uh, the prophet. But then we get to that scepter, and we can't we can't deny the we can't deny that one. That's obviously the king. So we in this short little text, we see a prophet, a priest, and a king. Well, we know the prophet. That one didn't pan out. He didn't work. No, Balaam, meh. Balaam's not our prophet. David wasn't our priest. And we thought David might be our king, but I don't think that was going to work out either. But all these things, while they did run past David, it didn't stop. The road, it ran right by David, ran right through David even. But it didn't stop. It wasn't a dead end at David. The signs, they kept pointing. 
You kept seeing signs. It didn't say, you didn't get to David and it said, you have arrived. You got to David and it said, you still got about 600 miles to go. And the landmarks, we got up close to those and they were not what we thought they were. But in Christ, we find all of those. Christ was the greater prophet. Way better than Balaam. He didn't speak the words of God unwillingly. David said about David said about Jesus, he said, Lo, in the book, it is written of me. He said, It pleases me to do your will, God. It, this is what I want. God, Christ, Jesus said that he wanted to be about his father's business. It wasn't like Balaam. Jesus didn't, didn't try and ride out of Jerusalem on that donkey, and that donkey had to stop and talk to him. He rode straight to the cross. He knew where he was going. He was about his father's business. So we find a picture of Christ in Balaam. We find a picture of Christ in that star. That star came up over Bethlehem, just like David did. That star, though, in Bethlehem, that wasn't just a little dim star that gave a little bit of light. That was a star that was an overwhelming light. It pulled people from way far away. It said, oh, hey, something's going on over there. They got over there. And they find this star in Bethlehem and a scepter. It points us to that greater king. David, David did. David went through. He took out some of the Moabites. He took out some of these other people. But he was constantly battling these other countries. And David, while he did get rid of them, he did get a couple good punches in Moab's face. He didn't smash Moab's face in. He didn't fulfill it all the way. It wasn't enough. And that's the point of all the scriptures. It's all pointing us to Christ. We might, we might run by David. We might run by Abraham. We might run by Gideon. But the road is headed to Christ. The covenants are leading us to Christ. The law points us to Christ. The land points us to Christ. The context in the wilderness. Who was in the wilderness with them? There was a rock that was falling around, giving them water that kept them alive. There was a flame that led him in the night. There was a cloud by day. There was a presence in the tabernacle. And it all points us back to Christ. Amen. And that's what this, that's what, honestly, that's what this whole, the whole study's been about. The whole book, the whole book is telling us all about what the whole Bible is about.